still believe that those Pentagon Papers came out in the New York Times because at that time the consensus in Washington is we have to uh, get we have to downplay the war. We cannot continue to fight the war on this level. You have to look at what was happening to American gold reserves, which uh, began to go. America began to go off the uh, gold standard for the dollar in '68. Foreign de Gaulle could no longer buy our gold. And then in 71, which was the year of the release of the Pentagon Papers, is the year that America went off the gold standard. And the year that the New York Times published the, all of that was clear in my mind then and, and still is. What was, uh, became uh, the reason I didn't want to reproduce that chapter is that I saw Dan, this man, Daniel Ellsberg, all I knew about is what I could read in the papers that he'd been, you know, graduated from Harvard and was a, a kind of a golden boy, a junior fellow and marine background and all of this. So um, I, I don't remember what I said. It wasn't a chapter about Daniel Ellsberg, but I didn't uh, separate him from this general kind of establishment thinking that we had to get out of the war. Uh, which was, of course, also Dan's thinking, but for non-establishment reasons. He was wanting to get out of the war because it was a monstrosity in killing people, which is not the way the establishment, those are not high concerns. If you see the chilling way that uh, George Bundy talks about American policy being justified in Indonesia by events in 1965, he's talking about the massacre of a million people, or maybe two million. The BBC has said three million people, and he's saying that justifies American policy because it meant that Indonesia was not going to go communist. Yeah, yeah. he said he said that it justified policy in Vietnam, that the Indonesian develop, uh, events justified the Vietnam policy. I'll, is, I'll send you. I'll send you the quote later. Yeah, I think, I think you have it in. I believe that you have it in um, the United States and the Overthrow of Sukarno essay is and um, and no, yeah. The, you know, I don't have it in the original essay because I didn't okay. know it then. I have it in the in the uh, my book um, poetry uh, poetry and terror. I, I do have it. And uh, one of us is right. You generally, you're, you're you're a better authority on what's in my writings than I am. So I won't <laughs> I won't contest it right now. Well, but I don't think that would have always been been the case. Pardon the interruption here, but I felt it necessary to point out that in this case, Peter was correct, and I was the opposite of correct, whatever that might be. Here is the actual quote from McGeorge Bundy. Events in Indonesia since the abortive September 30th coup are so far a striking vindication of U.S. policy towards that nation in recent years, a policy of keeping our hand in the game for long-term stakes despite recurrent pressures to pull out, break relations, recall our ambassador, etc. More specifically, they are a vindication of our post-1963 approach and the recommendations of last spring's bunker report. In the past week, we have continued to grope with the obscure but very promising forces set free by the defeat of the September 30th plot. The army is showing considerable courage, and the populace is with the army to an extraordinary degree so far. Okay, this is really horrific because the post-1963 approach means that, yes, there was a change after 
JFK died towards Indonesia, and it culminated in that abortive September 30th coup, which was probably uh, ginned up by the CIA, and people were tricked into trying to preempt it. And then these generals were murdered, and it got blamed on uh, the left, and the the result was that the army proceeded to massacre half a million to three million people who were PKI members, which were Indonesian Marxists, but really were just peasant rice farmers. And George Bundy is very excited about all of this and enthusiastic about this and considers it a great victory. So it's absolutely horrific. Now back to our episode. Anyway, um, Dan, uh, I was, uh, I wondered if Dan had been in one of Harvard's secret societies like the Porcellian, you know, the, 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 the deepest part of the deep state, the equivalent of skull and guns at Yale. Um, but uh, I, uh, when I met him, and I've, you know, I've had chances, I've talked about this so much with Dan that I feel I know what Dan's motives were then. And I'm very offended. There are, there are recent books, which I won't name, that are saying, oh, Dan was in Vietnam working with General Lansdale. He's obviously CIA and so on. Dan is not CIA. I mean, I can few people have talked to Dan more about these things than I have. And I just want to lay it out there that if Dan was CIA, then I'm a horse's ass because uh, I am absolutely, totally convinced of the sincerity of Dan's motives. And I think that is, to me, uh, Dan doesn't like me to stress this part of him because he thinks it's quite marginal. But the fact that he would sit down on a railway track and wait for a train to come, not knowing if the train, this is a train carrying nuclear waste from a nuclear weapons thing. He and Alan, well, about 20 people sat down and then when the train came around the corner, suddenly 18 of them were gone, and uh, two were left on the tracks. And it's the two parts of my life, Dan Ellsberg, my political, my, my, left, my left hemisphere brain, and Allen Ginsberg, the, the poet, my right hemisphere brain. But those two were left on the tracks. People who don't, they don't sit on the tracks and wait to be killed on behalf of the CIA, that, that this is a deeper kind of commitment to sort of things that really matter. And, of course, in Dan's case, the train stopped. And a year later, Richard Wilson, thinking of Dan, he sat on the train tracks a few miles from here at Point Costa, the group that my then wife was involved in. And he sat on the tracks, and the engineer of the train had been told there was a terrorist on the tracks, and he accelerated the train and opened up uh, uh, Wilson's um, brain, skull, you could see his brain, and uh, so destroyed to his legs, they had to be, both legs had to be amputated. Um, And all of that was because the FBI got extra budget for terrorism, and so they prosecuted all kinds of ordinary investigations as terrorism. Wilson was nonviolent. How can you call somebody who's 100% nonviolent a terrorist? But that's what he, that's what went came down in this country, and that's why Wilson has no legs. 
That was just an excerpt from the American Exception podcast. To hear the whole episode, as well as archived and new episodes, please subscribe to the American Exception podcast at Patreon. There's a link in the show notes, or you can just go to patreon.com slash American Exception. Subscribe and you can join us as we illuminate the dark side of the U.S. empire. Thank you.